I know some of you are going to be a little bit surprised by this one. Uh, I myself was very, very close to giving this lamentation status. This, this, is, <laughs> this is not a good episode. <laughs> this is a bad episode. You know how often I've said, it's a good scene, or it's, it's, it's not the greatest writing, but there's good acting, or there's, there's not the, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but, but the directing's really good, you know, stuff like that. You know, The Cloud, Star Trek Voyager, right? Well, none, none of that here. <laughs> none of that here. There's no good acting, there's no good directing, the writing is atrocious. Um, this is, this is a mess. This episode's a mess, but... And I know I've given this speech like four times before. For me, Lamentation really is bottom of the barrel. You have to go all the way down for that. And then I was thinking, well, what is defined as all the way down? Funnily enough, I started rules lawyering myself on this and arguing with myself. Thanks to the fact that I was having a conversation with someone while I was debating this, I actually have a timestamp. I spent 24 minutes after finishing this episode, debating whether to give it Lamentation status. And I wanted to know in advance, because, you know, I don't have the Imperial logo here, and I don't have the background on Lamentations. And, of course, I moved the webcam over there to try and distinguish it. So I needed to know before I started recording. So I'm sitting here debating and debating. Finally, I realized there's one thing that the previous Lamentations all had in common. Nothing redeeming about them. There was no redeeming element to Threshold. There was no redeeming element to all the bravest. There was nothing positive about Code of Honor. And there's one good scene in this episode. So that scene means this cannot be the absolute dregs. It's one step up from that, but doesn't actually qualify as complete dreck. This is not a lamentation. Now... Oh, let's talk about a few things here. Oh, preface. I am probably going to rant during this rumination. You have been warned. So, uh, there are three people I sat down and described this plot to. Just to see if, if they knew what I was talking about. And none of them did. None of them remembered this episode. They were like, huh? It's like, yeah, aliens and, and the pet aliens, and they have their own little system of laws. They want to make sure that they're followed. And the only punishment is death and blah, blah, blah. Wasn't ringing a bell for any of the three people. As a continuation of this test, I then said, okay, bunch of white-skinned, blonde bimbos wandering around in togas, and almost everyone, two of the three people I mentioned this to, immediately were like, oh, yeah, that episode. So you can tell which part of this episode is really memorable to people. <laughs> I just found that funny and I had to share it. I do want to share that this episode had a bare minimum of seven rewrites. And I wanted to talk about that really briefly. It hasn't come up that much yet. <sighs> this is something that will come up if we ever get to TOS. Every now and again, so a writer, when they write a script, they still have to receive credits for it. And there's, you know, there's a whole set of rules and regulations regarding how you have to put it and where you have to put it and making sure they get the proper funding for how much work they did and blah, 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 right? There's all sorts of stuff to protect writers. Um, but there's also this long accepted concept that, to my knowledge, goes back to the 50s, although it might have only really gained prominence in the 60s where a writer will write a script, and then it will receive rewrites, which is normal, 
but those rewrites completely change it to the point where it's effectively a completely different script and then the writer says I don't want that on my resume so change the name and they use pet names which they they specifically have pet names um, you know that are basically registered to them see so, so people will be able to still still say yes it's that writer but when that writer goes to try and shop around for a job or shop a script around, they don't have to say, oh yeah, I wrote that piece of crap because they, it was done under a slight, you know, a different label. I know this is, is a weird whole thing, but that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this. The really important part to mention, though, is this usually comes up when someone, you know, puts in a script and it's doctored and it's doctored and it's rewritten and what comes out is garbage or is something the original writer hates. Because sometimes you'll get a really good script that the original writer really disagrees with. And so then, you know, it turns into this great episode or whatever. And the writer's like, that wasn't what I wrote. This has happened too. In fact, this has happened in Star Trek. Before now, even. So what I wanted to do uh, was to, to, to talk about this with you so you'd understand when I say that the writer for this episode used one of his, you know, used a doctored name to put on the, 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 the credits. You understand why they did that. Because... The original script for this episode was completely different. Still a little basic, but interesting enough of a concept. I admit I'm probably too biased in favor of it because the original concept, because it's different from the existing episode, the original concept was Enterprise comes across this totalitarian government and, and there's this horrible regime and then there's these rebels who are fighting against them. I'm going to really be brief about this, by the way. And then the rebels are fighting and then the Enterprise gets involved, but maybe they shouldn't get involved. You know, justice comes into question. The Prime Directive comes into question. What should we do? And then, you know, in the end, the rebels win and establish a completely new totalitarian regime. And the cycle continues. I have a feeling that was just a little bit too, not dark, but specifically cynical for Roddenberry and the other people working on TNG. So they were like, nah. And instead they turned it into this. <sighs> I have to start talking about the episode now, don't I? <sighs> okay. Um, you want to know the first thing I noticed about this episode? This is not even a joke. It's the very first note on my, my page of notes here. Uh, Lieutenant Carey's here. Now, he's actually unnamed, but what's funny is the actor has a line. He's, when he's sitting back at Tactical, he actually has a line that he says to Picard. And I mention this because he acts just like Lieutenant Carey does. And it's the same actor, and he's unnamed in his credit. I mean, O'Brien doesn't even have a name yet at this point in time. So, I'm sorry, but I think I'm just going to go and accept it as canon that Lieutenant Carey actually started his career here on the Enterprise-D and happened to be on this episode, because that makes sense to me. It would not be the... whoops. Sorry about that. It would not be the last time that a Voyager crew member got their start on Enterprise in a way that isn't technically canon, but we'll get there when we get there. All right, now I really do have to start talking about the episode. God, where do I begin? In the first three minutes, I had so many notes. Whew. One of the things that they talk about in this episode, um, in a very vacuous, kind of a vague sort of a way, is the prime directive. The prime directive means we don't... Well, they don't actually really define the prime directive that well. 
which is interesting. They don't really uh, say a lot about it. They don't really explain how it works. They're, it's just kind of a non-interference policy, which is such a vague statement that you'd think they'd have something a little bit better defined for something they call the Prime Directive. We'll talk more about the Prime Directive in the TNG era later. We're still coming up to the episode where we'll finally sit down and discuss that. But I mention this because they come up, they, they talk about the Prime Directive quite a bit towards the latter bit of the episode. But they don't mention it before it comes up. Now, I want you to picture some, okay? These people are not particularly advanced. They've never been to space. Uh, they show no signs of any kind of automotive tech or whatever. But let's just, let's be really, really kind. Let's say they have, let's say, 1900s tech, real-life equivalent, okay? I would personally think they're even further back than that, and I'll get into why I think that in a bit. But 1900s, so there you are, 1900s. And a ship full of aliens shows up and lands on Cuba, I guess, or Florida Beach, something like that. And they're like, hey... And they're just here to chat and have fun and take recreation. Now these humans, or excuse me, I'm sorry, these aliens who are visiting here, Earth, 1900s, happen to look exactly like us, happen to be sexually compatible with us, as has been multiply demonstrated. And they just hang out and they have wreck time and it's cool, then they leave. Because that's basically what the Enterprise is doing. Now, I'm saying this very flippantly. But I want you to genuinely think for a moment what 1900s, hell, even modern, real life would do to the casual revelation of interstellar life and an entire interstellar community, for that matter, when a ship just shows up and decides to take shore leave here on Earth. Because that's what the Enterprise does on this planet. They just show up and they're like, hey, what's up? How's it going? They beam in right in front of them. The mere existence of the very concept of a transporter. I mean... <laughs> I, <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. Well, no, it can't be that bad. Surely they've had contact with these people before. No, no, um, they, le they dropped off a colony over on this other world in a star cluster. Keep in mind that star cluster thing. It's important for the future. And they dropped them off, and they're like, all right, colony settled. You know what we should do? We should go hang on. Oh, hang on, hang on. Sensors show that there's life on that planet, which we just discovered. Okay. Send down an away team. That's a good first contact policy, right? You know, we have an entire episode devoted to nothing more than first contact and how careful and cautious and delicate of a situation first contact can be and we see multiple different perspectives on it and multiple different mindsets about it and it doesn't even end on a on a high note it doesn't even end happy i am speaking of course of the episode first contact good episode by the way i think i've referenced it before but that's not the only instance where they cover how careful they are about this whole first contact thing and with good reason you're walking in and basically shattering these people's lives if you do that Oh, that's right. By the way, these are pre-warp people. That's established rather clearly. So whatever their level of tech, they're not in space. They don't do space. They don't have shuttles, okay? They don't have in-system travel. They have nothing. But no, 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 no. Let's just casually show up and beam on board and say, Hey, you want to have sex? Because, God, I really want to have sex right now with an alien I just met! 
so, <laughs> you know, hang on. I, I kept having this thought as I was going through this. Did they accidentally end up in Ryza and I just missed it? I know, I know. This place doesn't, it's, it's nothing like Ryza. It's, it's basically a pleasure planet that is an artificially controlled environment in order to maintain a pseudo-Eden paradise in which people can enjoy themselves and relax with basically no crime or violence in order to have copious amounts of sex with each other and what other form of entertainments they seek. It's nothing like Ryza. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any behind-the-scenes material corroborating this theory, so all I have is my own wild speculation on the matter. But you can't tell me I'm the only one who thinks that Ryza came out of the idea of this planet, or at least the way it was presented. Because Ryza hasn't shown up yet. It doesn't exist in Star Trek mythos yet. Anyways. So. So they... So they just fling the Prime Directive out the window. And I, I find this funny, by the way. Anybody who's watched my Voyager stuff knows I'm actually pretty anti-Prime Directive. I tend to be pro-think. I think and pro-think and pro-action. It, it's, it's both halves. You, know, you have to think about the situation carefully, and then you have to carefully do something about the situation you've thought about carefully. Right? Like, that's pretty much my policy platform, or whatever you want to call that, right? So I tend to be anti-prime directive, as it is usually applied, because it is usually applied as an excuse to both not think and not take action. And yet in this episode, this is one of the most clear-cut examples I, I can think of off the top of my head of when the prime directive should apply. God's sake, people. And the episode even kind of shows why that is. It's an alien culture. Yeah, they look a lot like us, but they don't act like us, they don't think like us, and we didn't know the full cost and risks of A, being down there interacting with them, and B, who might also be involved in these people, in a very non-prime directive way, for that matter. Next thing I want to talk about is the thing that has pissed me off ever since I first saw this episode. Now, I have never liked this episode. Some episodes of Star Trek, I just look at it and I'm like, oh, that's ridiculous. Or I don't really care for it or whatever. And it's not until I go back later, either as an adult or someone who's you know, doing an analysis on the work, that I really understand just how bad some works of fiction can be. But this episode pissed me off even as a kid. Even seeing it for the first time. You want to know why? Crime of ignorance. Even as a... I don't remember how young I was. I was pretty young. Even as a kid, watching for this, this for the first time, I got angry at this episode because they were willing to execute someone for a crime they were unaware existed and whose terms and conditions were frankly ludicrous. If I'm walking down the street and I, you know, I look across the street and I'm like, oh, shoot, you know, I, I run across the street real quick to help someone get a ball, you know, and I have jaywalked, and someone walks up and says, excuse me, you need to be executed for that. <laughs> I, okay, let's assume for a moment that obviously I don't know that jaywalking exists. Let's, let's add that a proviso. So I have accomplished this extremely minor crime, so minor that it doesn't even really qualify as a crime on the books anymore. And I didn't know it existed. And I did it with no malevolence, and I did it in a way that didn't hurt anybody or anything. But, someone walks up and says, you, you're guilty, and we're gonna kill you for it. 
I, I can't actually put into words how ludicrous and stupid this whole thing is. Now, I want to stress that it's the crime of ignorance part that's ludicrous and stupid. There's actually something, horrifically enough, that can be said for the method of justice this, the system that these people use. And I will discuss that and try to give it its fair shake later. But a crime of ignorance which causes no particular harm or foul, or nothing that couldn't be repaired quickly and easily. I mean, you, you can't tell me that in a court of law or, or just even talking to me in real life saying, that person deserves to die because we're going to have to put that tape back over the, the flowers. I mean, that. At worst, the crime he committed was not listening to his friends saying, stop, you know, stop, because he didn't. That's the crime in call, so that's, that's execution worthy. Are you really going to try and argue that with me? No. No, you're not. Because you have a brain. But these people don't have brains. You can tell by looking at the guest stars and the way they act the entire episode. They're either... I don't know what to... Like, like almost stuck up, kind of an angry. Or... Oh, or of course, kneeling in worship. Can't forget that one. Let's get to the episode proper. Yeah, I, I'm, I haven't even really started talking about the episode yet. So, you know, they, the crew is in desperate need of supply relief. We are not a supply vessel. We're not supposed to be the kind of ship that establishes colonies. Okay, that, that makes a degree of sense. Uh, two questions. First of all, why are you not a ship that can accommodate that? You're a galaxy-class cruiser with tons of space and tons of everything. You are basically a catch-all ship. I know you're not specialized towards establishing colonies, but why was this an issue? I know, I know. You're going to bring up Quartermaster and... You know, uh, the word I can't think of all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, oh my god, I can't think of the word. Uh, supply lines... That kind of a thing. You're going to bring up the uh, logistics. There we go. You're going to bring up the logistics of it. Okay, fair enough. Second question, then, if, you're, if we're going to allow that maybe the Enterprise-D, a galaxy-class cruiser, is not best suited for this. All right, sure. Uh, why isn't a ship better suited to this doing it? Why did they send the flagship of the fleet to go do this? A lot of the missions the Enterprise-D has undertaken have been a little questionable, but usually I can ex accept that, you know. First mission to Farpoint Station. It's a, it's an, it's a Farpoint Station. It's way out there. It's important, given its positioning. The Ferengi were involved, and at the time we were taking the Ferengi seriously for some reason. Because Gene Ronberry. And, you know, it, it's, it, we needed a shakedown cruise. We needed to pick up the rest of the crew, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so there's... Okay, that at least makes sense. All right. Um, science team near the star. Well, that wasn't even really a mission. That was just go check up on them and then leave. It just turned into something. Uh, then we have Code of Honor, which, ugh, but for all its flaws, the mission at least was a fairly high priority one, thanks to the plague and the mysteriously magical nature of this vaccine that they had. So, okay. Um, what else we got? Last Outpost. First contact with the Ferengi. An, a known hostile race. Okay. Makes sense. Um, what else? Uh, Lonely Among Us. Two races who want to enter the Federation and are very hostile towards each other. 
this is getting into the uh, territory, but I can see for political reasons why you'd want to send the flagship to do this if for no other reason than to show that you take this seriously and to add some kind of diplomatic weight to the provisions, okay? Now we've got this mission. Establish a colony. Not a outpost, not a military installation, not an important science uh, outpost or whatever. I'm struggling with my words. This is so stupid. It's nothing big or important or relevant or strategically valuable. It's just a bunch of people, in Picard's own words, who want the challenge of building a life on a new world. Why is that the mission being assigned to the Enterprise D? The flagship of the fleet, by the way. This is one of the only Enterprises that's actually the flagship of the fleet. And you're going to make the flag carrier go establish a colony. Are you really that low? On, and remember, there's no big wars going on right now. The Ferengi aren't doing anything, nor ever, will ever. The Romulans have been quiet. The Cardassians are... are not, and we have the peace treaty with the Cardassians. The Borg don't exist yet. The Klingons are our allies. The Breen don't exist yet. You know, I, I could go down the list, but you get it? This is the era of peace and prosperity. This is the golden winds of change era. Why don't you have the resources to send a supply ship to establish a colony? I'm sorry, I'm really going off here, but I don't care because I hate this episode. I warned you that I'd be ranty. Which brings me to my next point. Riker comes up, and he's like, hey, and... <laughs> I feel like the director said to Riker, okay, I want you to imagine you've just taken all the drugs, okay? Just just all of them. And I want you to just go, Ugh. and his grin as he walks onto the bridge after coming up from the planet is so wide, it actually looks unnatural. It was kind of unnerving. For just a second, I thought the Joker had come on board the Enterprise D, which would have at least lifened the episode up a little bit, but whatever. So then he comes up and says, hey, yeah, everything's great. And then Jordy is, of course, the one who mentions they make love at the drop of a hat. And, oh, we see so much of the PDA down there. And I'm just going to take a moment. I know this is out of place, but their outfits are stupid. Okay, that, I just, I'm not going to rant about it. I'm not going to go into detail. Their outfits are stupid. Moving on. Watching it in the Blu-ray, I watched. I kept watching it thinking, oh my god, those poor actors and actresses. Both male and female, by the way. <laughs> For once, there's no gender bias in old Star Trek, because both of them were equally looking ridiculous and stupid. Like, they're literally going to fall out of their outfits at any second. But anyways, moving on. And then Yar. Tasha Yar is presented as if she is enamored with this idea of Ryza Beta point zero three or whatever the hell you want to call this planet. The Edo planet that wishes it was Ryza. Yar. Lieutenant Tasha Yar. Who, I remind you, in just two episodes ago, helped to once again reestablish her character arc that has been in almost every single episode this entire season. The one redeeming scene well, not the only redeeming scene, but the, the, the scene that sticks with me most from uh, Naked Now, and also the only scene that the writers will really acknowledge as canon and do anything with in the future, was the scene between Tasha and Data. Not because they boned. That doesn't really matter. Let's just be blunt. It was because they were intimate. Do you get the difference? 
it was because she wanted something more than just mindless sex. Because she comes from a horrible place. And she's just totally cool with boning whomever. Of course she would be. Why wouldn't she be? And... <sighs> Let me take a moment to say that I put none of this on Denise Crosby. I just want to make that clear. Okay, none of my vile vitriol that I currently am trying to spit on my microphone is is aimed at Denise Crosby. But the way Natasha Yar is portrayed in this episode is a vacuous twithead who is sex-obsessed to the point where she is negligent in her duties twice. Once at the beginning of the episode, I wrote it down. I have a full report of their customs and laws. Full report of their customs and laws, which mentions nothing at all about the death penalty, the roaming punishment zones, or the nature of why they've come up with this level of system and why it would be a part of their culture. You'd think something that's so ingrained that literally even children know about it would be something that would come up in a full report. Oh, I'm sure Tashiara got a full report down there, and that irritates me. That some writer somewhere thought that that would be a good idea. If anything, Yar should have been the person who hated this place, my opinion. She should have been the person that this just made her uncomfortable and awkward. And I don't want to be here. Oh, please, give me a hug. No. Like, just, no. Hands off. I, I understand and respect your customs. I just don't want to do that. Nobody else touchy-feely with y'all. And, given that one of her... I mean, she should have been portrayed as some level of competence. Security chief, right? So maybe she should have looked at this and be like, Oh, hey, I found out that there's this whole death penalty punishment zone thing. Oh, and by the way, the punishment zone moves. They actually have a line earlier about how the punishment zone is selected on, like, a, a daily basis. But when the punishment zone thing happens, it moves in the space of a few seconds and or minutes, depending on when you define it. So, that's neat. That's really, really convenient, actually. But whatever. It's also one of those weird conveniences. There's no plot reason for that. The only thing that would change was now, you know... Uh, Yar, Worf, and Riker would also be facing the death penalty instead of just Wesley. Like, does that actually change anything? Really? <sighs> I mean, maybe it would make Picard's decision easier, because now it's, you know, four people instead of a thousand, maybe? I, I'm getting ahead of myself. So Yar, in addition to having character assassination, they also, de they also decide, hey, let's make her an incompetent moron. And then Picard turns and says, there's got to be some negatives. And Riker says, none. No negatives whatsoever. There's nothing wrong with the planet. Trust me, sir, it's the most perfect planet ever. You know, even as a kid, watching this for the first time, I remember distinctly turning to mom and being like, so, what do you think the the twist is? You know, what, what's the big deadly threat? And she and I just kind of bantered back and forth because we've seen television before. We've read books before. This is probably one of the oldest sci-fi tropes and definitely a well-established Star Trek trope even before this episode came out. Everything looks perfect. Nope, just kidding, it's not. You know, you know what it is, right? You know what I'm talking about. I don't know the official trope name for that concept or that type of story, but you've seen it before. And so the the first part of this episode goes so far out of its way to establish that everything is 
perfect on this planet. That you're just sitting here like, all right, come on, I get it. Yep. Yep. Yep, I see the neon signs. Uh-huh. Yep. <sighs> come on. Get to the... T oh, death penalty. There we go. Thank you. God, I thought we'd never get there. Ugh. Oh. You know how Picard acts in the first part of the, like the very first part, the very, very first part. We haven't even left the teaser yet. When they come up and they're like, sir, it's perfect. And Jordy's like, sir, it's perfect. And Yar's like, sir, it's perfect. And Riker's like, no, seriously, there's no negatives. Picard acts frankly like I would. <laughs> because it's no, it's no secret that I'm a prude. And I don't, I would not want to go to this planet. I, I would be like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> no, thank you. I'd be kind of like Yar would be, actually, at least in my estimation. So, no, 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 thank you. Mm, it's okay. It's okay. No, no offense. Just, but I found that amusing that Picard comes off this way. I feel like someone watched this episode and decided that would be a character trait for him because this is not the last time that will come up. But anyways, so then they go down. And they have the free love planet. You know, I really don't want to get into an actual discussion of the ethics or medical side or morality or preference or choice or anything of free love. I don't want to get into that. Okay, I don't. What I do want to say is that free love was one of those things that was being pushed by people who began their careers during the hippie movement or for episodes or shows that were presented during the hippie movement. The original series had several episodes which were very free-lovey and hippie-y. I don't mean this as insults, by the way. Okay? It's a statement of fact. The tonality of it was clearly leaning that way. And this episode struck me very much as a hippie episode. Again, that part is not an insult. Just the overall presentation of it. And I mention that because this is still an episode that feels like it belongs in TOS, not TNG. And, you know, I can't help but notice that most of the episodes that I don't like in TNG Season 1 are the ones that feel like TOS episodes. Now, that feels weird to me. Because I like TOS. I've watched TOS recently. More recently than I've watched TNG. I got a hold of the Blu-rays a couple of years ago. And... <laughs> I like TOS. I don't like all of TOS. It's got a lot of Twilight Zone syndrome going on. I just realized it. Twilight Zone syndrome is where you've got a work and it's either really, really good or really, really bad and there's generally not a lot in between. That's the original series. I mean, the good is great. And then you have episodes like, you know, Return to Eden. But anyways, or what the hell the episode's called. Moving on. So, here we are. This, this hippie planet with... <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm sorry, i got to share. Uh, while I was in the middle of working on this rumination and watching it, I just I took a moment. I was literally doing this in my chair, and I had to pause the episode because I need to take notes. You know, and I'm just, I, could, I couldn't for just a second. I needed a moment, and I went to my Twitter and tweeted that I was already, had tons of notes for being nowhere in the episode. And one person responded and says, Oh, is that Hitler's Sex Planet episode? <laughs> uh anyways. And they got a jog everywhere. There's no cars or, or, you know, space hovercraft or transporters. No, everyone's got a jog everywhere. That's how they stay in shape, right? I mean, that's just logical. I already ranted about their outfits. Now, they even flat out call this place 
Eden. They, 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 they flat out state, oh, it's like Eden. Direct parallel. It's like, okay, okay, we get it. And they use this area, which is actually quite a beautiful area. I'll give them credit for that. It's, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's a place Star Trek uses a lot for filming. They'll later use this exact same area. This is a location shot. It's not a set, obviously. They'll actually later use this exact same area for Starfleet Academy and virtually every thing from here to Voyager that showcases Starfleet Academy. So you might recognize it if you look back at that. And it is a very beautiful area. I feel like I've been there before in real life, but I would have been pretty young when I did it, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, I used to live in the area. And uh, so that's that's nice. It, it looks very pretty. Um, there were airplanes. They had to redub stuff. But the more I'm watching it, the more I'm thinking, okay, I'm a setting builder at heart, right? Like, character is my jam, but the thing I'm really good at is setting building. I know how to write a setting. I'm really good at that. And when I look at a place like this, my very first question is, how? This is something I've brought up before. Obviously, this is something that comes after this, but you guys at least I'm, I assume some of you, have probably already seen my Star Trek Insurrection rumination. And I didn't quite give that one a lamentation status either, but I, I, I spared no teeth in ripping that one to shreds. And one of the biggest problems with that movie, almost that episode, was that they've got this paradise area, and the how is never explained. Like, they eschew technology, although they have a dividing line of what they define as technology, because they do use technology, but I'm not getting into that debate again. But somehow they have everything nice and clean, and they have lots of resources, and they have plentiful food and, and comforts. They have enough time to literally go play. Like, I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but you have to remember, the very concept of having spare time to go play is a byproduct of technology by remove, reducing the amount of time it takes to do mandatory things necessary to survive. Right? This, this is very basic stuff. So how? How does this place exist? Now what's really weird is the episode gives the answer, but never says it out loud. I don't know if this is a byproduct of the original script. I imagine not. In fact, I imagine that none of this was thought of by any of the producers of this episode. But when I was watching this episode, I just it clicked with me what was going on here. Usually, when you see this level of Eden or Paradise or whatever, you're looking at one of two scenarios. Uh, what I call mastery of the environment, which is pretty much the highest tier of control of the environment. In other words, you can fully change and alter it without damaging it and still allow it to flourish and grow. That's mastery of the environment. We're not at that in real life, for example. We're nowhere near that in real life. But I've talked about this in a few other works where it's come up, in fictional works. Or an external force, which has mastery of the environment, is basically enforcing the status quo upon the location. And we've got these people up there in this ship who have claimed this entire star quadrant or excuse me, star cluster, despite the fact that there's, like, nothing here, just a bunch of empty planets except for this one. But they've claimed this cluster. It's theirs. It's their territory. And this is a wildlife preserve. I had to actually figure out the exact term I was thinking of there. But that's I think that's what's going on here. And again, the episode doesn't really do anything to establish this. They do some, like, spitballing and speculating, but nothing ever in the episode really helps, stands down and says, this is what's going on. I think, 
I think that these Edo space people, whatever the hell you want to call them, I refuse to call them gods because they flat out, pretty much flat out say that they're not. But these Edo dimensional ship, ship people, whatever, they look down and they're like, okay. And they see these Edo, the people, and for whatever reason, decide to care for and nurture them. And uh, so they establish a very strict sense of things, and they establish a set of protocols that everyone has to follow, and they make sure that only people of certain genes or certain uh, you know, racial groups or, or genetic traits grows strong. And yeah, I'm, I'm making a Hitler parallel. I'm just going to cut forward in the joke. But anyways, Hitler joke aside, I really do think that's what's going on here. This is a wildlife preserve. And they're just sitting here maintaining it externally because there's... How else do these people have food or beautiful weather with no knowledge or, or way of dealing with anything? Although they do have a strangely large vocabulary for people who think it's normal to be murdered for accidentally walking over a line and tumbling into some flowers. Didn't even damage the flowers, by the way. I just I actually bothered to check this time around. <sighs> And you know what's funny is this is the second episode in a row, back from Lonely Among Us, where there's been an interesting concept there that has not been explored at all. The idea of these people being the opposite of the Prime Directive. Once again, the Prime Directive and I have an interesting history, both sides, positive and negative, but I do believe in the very at least some aspects of it and the concepts that it was originally laid out for, you know, to prevent what these guys are doing. Because if the Federation just walked... The Federation has more than the capacity to send a ship just once every month, maybe once every year, and just make the rounds with pre-warp civilizations and just show up in orbit and be like, hey, so, we're all going to do this now and just totally take control of their culture and their society and overhaul them and fix them to be what they consider to be better. Okay? Now, obviously, everyone hearing that thinks, oh, that's horrible and evil, and with good reason. But if you think about it, if the Prime Directive didn't exist, the Federation could and would do that with good intentions, with the desire to help people. I'm not advocating that, I'm just pointing it out. So, Federation could easily do what these Edoians or whatever. I know the Edo are the people on the planet, but I don't have any name for the people in the space, so I'm just going to call them Edoians, okay? How about Stupidians? I like that better. So the Stupidians have done exactly that, it looks like. They've shown up, and they never say this outright, but it's implied based on the presentation that they're, you know, they're all, oh, we used to live in barbarous, terrible ways before the Stupidians showed up. Now, they don't say that again. And it's probably too subtle for this episode, because this episode's really, really dumb and really badly written, but it makes sense, doesn't it? And they showed up and said, we will take care and we will provide for you and blah, blah, blah. I actually, forgive me for going off in a second, I actually wrote an entire island on a planet. It was an artificial island. It was called Visayan Lasalle. And, uh, <laughs> deliberate Ashron's call reference. But not that one. I'm not talking about AC. This is in Primus. And this island was fully artificial and had, basically, the nature of its construction meant that it was continuously reconstructing itself. So... Physics didn't quite work normally there in certain specific ways, and resources were abundant. 
you know, farming was almost unnecessary because of the nature of how they could produce food. They didn't need mining techniques because you could literally go scrape at a rock with a pickaxe and get what you needed and so forth and so on, right? And I did that with the specific deliberate intent as a setting builder to establish a people who were not primitive, but because of a lack of need, never advanced, if that makes any sense. These were not barbarous, savage child races. They're just people who never actually had to do much to earn things. And the moment that was taken away, their entire civilization devolved into absolute chaos. Because, of course, it did. Nothing was working right anymore. Imagine if the Stupidians just suddenly went away and this controlled environment had to be maintained. Because you almost imagine it has to be maintained. Like, continuous effort, right? So maintaining this continuous terraforming power beam whatever on the planet, and then all of a sudden that's taken away and natural events start happening. Chaotic events start happening. Storms and, and crops wilting and animals dying off and pestilence or disease or genetic rot or in God knows what else, right? But no, 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 no. It's Eden. <laughs> uh, I also have a note written down here that just says the words uh, PDA. I... <laughs> Because there's a lot of PDA on the planet. And so there's this scene. There's this scene where Wesley goes and meets this girl who's about his age. And she says, I want you to teach me about a game. And he is super awkward and not in a good way. Not in that kind of, aw, oh, that's adorable way. Just just plain awkward as he's try as, as Will Wheaton is trying to act around the idea that his character doesn't really know anything about sex on a planet that has well established itself as being all about sex since the teaser, by the way. Hey, just reminding you about that. And then she's like, no, I just want to play ball. And he's like, oh, okay, right, right. So that was awkward and stupid. Pretty much the next scene has... Riker going up to Worf and talking about sex. Now, I, I know that I'm a prude, and I know that I just don't want to get into this, but I can't help but notice that the, 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 the parallels here are so strong that on my notes I wrote, you know, intensely awkward Wesley scenes about sex, and then the next thing is intensely awkward Worf scenes about sex. Like, like they just copy-pasted the scene almost. I mean, I know they didn't, really. The dialogue is different. But was that just the intent? Was they try were they trying to do that? <sighs> so then Tasha learns that there's apparently a uh, there's that they never mentioned anything about crimes on this planet. That it never came up in her full report about the the Customs and laws. I had I checked my notes to make sure I was I wasn't putting words into her mouth. The customs and laws. Full report does not include anything about punishment or crimes. Now, I'm going to play straw man for a bit here. Well, not straw man. That's actually the wrong term because a straw man is basically deliberately saying your argument wrong so it will lose. That's not what I mean. I'm going to play devil's advocate, I guess, which I hate doing, but I do want to be fair on this. So you know what? I'm not going to play anything. I'm just going to be fair about this. I'm just going to discuss this like a ruminator because that's my freaking job. <sighs> Sorry. I'm, is it obvious I hate this episode? <clears throat> so they 
actually go more in detail than they really had to about their system of justice and why it works. They have punishment zones, which move, and as we see established in the episode, those punishment zones move at will, like per minute or whatever, right? Or maybe per hour. But the point being, it can happen like that within the space of seconds or minutes. So punishment zones just move along wherever. And these guys who enforce it wander around with, at all times, they got those little kill-you-instantly needles on their belts. How did they come up with a painless poison? Oh, right, the Stupidians gave it to them. Sorry. It really does explain a lot, doesn't it? So they've got these random zones. Now, the logic here is surprisingly sound, but amazingly naive. Let me put it to you this way. Now, on Edo, or whatever the hell the name of the damn planet is, any crime carries the same penalty. Death penalty, right? Okay. Let me put this into something slightly more sensical. Let's say it's severe crimes, okay? Only severe crimes carry the death penalty. But all of them do, right? You, know, you mug someone, not steal from someone. You mug someone, death. You kill someone else, death. You, you know, destroy a, lot, a certain amount of property, death. Right? Just blah, blah, down the list, down the list, okay? Now, let us also assume that you decide, for whatever reason, to make it so that those laws are only enforceable at certain places at certain times. See, the logic here is the idea is that you never know where it's illegal to do something and where it is legal to do something. So the logic is that because it might always be, basically you always have to treat it as if it's illegal. You with, you with me? So no matter where you're doing something, if you think about doing something illegal, like the horrifically dexterous, destructive, terroristic attack of, of accidentally stumbling into some flowers, then you would decide not to because this might be a punishment zone right now and I don't want to do that. Okay, so from a basic logic perspective, this tracks clean. Now I'm going to destroy that by using actual logic, because that makes no damn sense when you really think about it. If you make it so that things are only illegal in certain areas at certain times, do you know what's going to happen? People are going to occasionally either screw up, like Wesley did, or, you know, deliberately cause a crime, deliberately do wrong. And when they do so and don't get punished or caught or anything because it wasn't a punishment zone, they'll be like, ah, ha, ha, you know, I got away with it. But the episode posits the idea that those people in those circumstances would think, oh, thank goodness I got away with it. Next time I got to make sure not to do that. <laughs> the episode posits the, this as a positive thing, that these people are so respectful of the fact that at any time they might be executed for, for stupid crimes that they would never do anything wrong. Why would you ever do anything wrong if you're going to be killed for doing it? That's also the reason for using the death penalty, by the way. Just kidding. Straight to the worst punishment. Or I shouldn't say worst, but you know. Straight to capital punishment. No one will do any crime if the punishment is always death. This is actually something that has been posited in real life as an actual concept, which is a topic I really don't want to get into. I have talked about this briefly over on Babylon 5. Please see the episode uh, Passing Over Gethsemane for a discussion about that. Moving on. So... Having to, having to, oh, also the episode Repentance over on Voyager. It's come up twice already, this whole capital punishment thing. So, 
What they are positing is that the atmosphere of fear ensures that no one will ever commit a crime. Now, I shouldn't have to explain the obvious flaws in a system that only functions because everyone is always afraid of committing a crime. I don't mean like the, the terrible, <sighs> but I guarantee you that any of those people who walk up and like they see those flowers, for example, they think, eh, let's go this other way. I don't want to be near those flowers. Out of fear. This might be a punishment zone. You never know. Let's also examine the simple reality that punishment zones is unnecessary if you're doing this. The only reason to do punishment zones is if you don't have enough people to enforce, which implies that people are committing these crimes or accidentally violating them all the time, and you would have a need to enforce them. And I, you see how this just doesn't work the more you dissect it and the more you break it down and the more you analyze it, the more you start to realize that this is just a bunch of nonsense drivel that nobody thought through at all. Can I just, can I just end this, this particular discussion and move on from the capital punishment thing? Okay? Cool. So then they call out to Wesley. Wesley ignores them because he's a moron. And then he dives into the thing. Now, I said I was going to move on from the capital punishment thing, but I just noticed my next note, and it talks about this very topic. And that is, it's always sad, but we have to do this. It's always sad. How many other executions have you done, sir, today? This episode, if seen in a very particular light, and I admit it was in no way intended this by the writers, but if you look at this from just the right angle... This is a freaking dystopian society from hell. Think about how many people. Because, you know, remember, random, right? Because you don't have enough people to enforce the law everywhere, which implies you need that enforcement everywhere, so you try to use fear to establish it instead. With me? And these people are sufficiently experienced in killing and have no problem killing children. And, 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 and I mean, let's ignore how old Wesley is at this point in time, okay? Everyone involved calls him a child. Even the other people, even the person about to kill him on the spot. Oh, also, do you know what was this? We have the evidence of the crime and the witness of the crime. That was all that was stated to be necessary to commit this. He then adds on top of that as a bonus confession. He was astonished that Wesley confessed to this. Because apparently people like to hide the fact that they commit crimes in this setting. Why else would he have such a reaction, after all? But that's okay, because again, and I reiterate, the only things he, he mentioned were necessary to establish guilt was evidence of crime, witness to crime. That's all. <laughs> I'm sorry. You want to think about the dystopian thing again? So, you know, it's always sad when we kill them. And this... I wonder how many kids this guy's killed. Then Wesley says a line that makes me want to smack him. I'm Starfleet. We don't lie. I don't even feel like covering why that line pisses me off, so let's just move on. Now, what's weird about this, and really helps to add to these dystopian vibes, is they go to kill Wesley, and then they resist. Now, obviously, anyone would be surprised why you'd resist killing Wesley. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist the joke. I couldn't resist the joke. But they seem surprised that people resist at all. They seem flummoxed. And, and, of course, are in no way actually capable of enforcing their will. 
Keep in mind, later on, they make it a point that there's all the advanced technology that, that the, the Enterprise has that they can use to overpower the situation. And they do and can. That's not relevant here. Riker just walks up and beats him, knocks him down, and gets the thing away from him. Or actually, no, it's uh, Yash, Tasha who gets away from him. But you know what I mean? This isn't like, hang on, or we shall shake the heavens with our mighty power. No, Riker just walks up and punches him, basically. And he was flummoxed by that, completely astonished. Why are you resisting? Nobody resists. <sighs> then Tasha picks up and looks at it. And for just one second, I thought she was going to say, like some stupid, it's an alkaloid-based poison or something that she could no way possibly know. But then she says, it's a syringe, sir. Well, no frickity duh! <laughs> I could tell that when it was still on his belt. I like Tasha as a character. Or at least I think I do. Maybe I don't. I don't know. Maybe I'm more biased for her because they crapped all over her in the first season. But seriously? It's a syringe. You are not impressing me this episode. <sighs> so then they mention that the zone moved on. Or else everyone would be guilty of death. Then we cut to the Enterprise and Crusher is analyzing data. <sighs> I'm willing to forgive the idea that Crusher's the only one on hand capable of taking care of data. I'm willing to at least acknowledge and accept that as a possibility or reality. What I want to know is, why were the Stupidians blocking communications with the planet while they were, you know, communicating with data? Now, I know the answer for that. It's so that there was no communication between the two to set up the artificial tension so that we'd be like, something is wrong. Then Picard goes down to the planet. They meet, and Lee, there's two primary Edoians, okay? Doians, that's a great way to put these people. The guy and the girl, okay? Now, the guy, from this point on, acts like a smarmy dick. Now, I get that he's upset. I get that the laws are blah, blah, blah. I, I, again, I can kind of understand this. But these people come down, and... They say, you know, do you have capital punishment? This discussion goes back and forth. And Picard, who even by this time in the series has established himself as a diplomat and a skilled speaker, just kind of fumbles through this conversation and is basically, for lack of a better way to put it, owned by the Edoian. Pretty much flat out admits that once in our more barbarous history we have evolved past blah, 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 blah. So then the guy... The Edoian turns that around on him and starts preaching about how you used your advanced technology to, adva to rescue your advanced person who luckily escaped the barbarism of our backwards little world. And I wanted to slap him across the face. I mean, <laughs> again, I can kind of see where he's going with this. But it's hard for me to reach out to you and be diplomatic or understanding when you're being a dick. So then Picard's like, okay, I need to know more about this situation. And rather than trying to communicate with the Stupidians or trying to reach out to the Stupidians or study the archives of the Edoians or anything else that he could possibly do, he decides the only possible thing he can do is to bring her up there. Some random person, basically. There's no established, like, leader thing here. It's just, let's bring her up. They mention a council, but that's it. Bring her up 
You're the guest star with the most lines. Come on, let's go. And they drag her on board the thing and shove her in front of the, the, the stupidian ship, acknowledging that it's a bad idea, recognizing that he's just so desperate that he's willing to take such terrible means to do this. And it turns out very badly. Big shock. But a couple things to comment on this whole sequence of events. First of all, she understands what a hostage is. Why does she know what a hostage is? A hostage is a fairly specific slice of circumstance that usually happens in fairly violent criminal circumstances. Why does she know what that is? This is the kind of thing where I think she would say, do you mean to hold me as barter for the boy? You know, something a little more understandable from their perspective. But no, she just jumps straight to hostage. And she even's like, okay, I accept it. And Picard's like, no, 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 no. Because we got to show, remember, that we're the tolerant, kind, evolved, perfect human federation in front of the kind, tolerant, perfect, evolved Edoians. So they bring her on board. Crusher starts to overact. Now, I'm going to take a moment here to apologize to Gates McFadden, even though you will never, ever see me or this video or anything about this. But uh, I think Gates McVadden is actually a pretty good actress. And she's been a good actress even before now on TNG. But she is a terrible actress in this episode. She overacts. Now, I tend to be rather melodramatic in my real life. Like, if, you, if you've ever seen me, I do tend to gesticulate. I do tend to, to raise my voice. And I do tend to use lots of emotion and lots of projecting in the way I talk. That's just kind of the way I am. But in acting... You are generally discouraged from doing that because it's usually perceived as overacting. Para exemple. Have you ever seen X-Men 3? You have? I'm so sorry. But <laughs> if you have, there is a scene... I'm going to spoil the crap out of X-Men 3, and you know what? I don't even care. It's an old movie, and it's a terrible movie. There's a scene where, where Picard... Wow, I just said that. Where Xavier... Dies, and I got to put that in quotes because the way the, the X Men movies work. But he dies, right? So, Eric Lenscher, played by the ever awesome. Oh God, I suddenly can't think of him. Uh, Ian McKellen, Ian McKellen, who was a good actor, portrays horrific grief on his face, his voice, and his body language. It's only like a five-second bit, but it's just you could see the grief gravitating from him. Brilliantly acted. Then it cuts to Halle Berry, who I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong, and I don't give a crap, because she's not a good actress. She starts wailing, oh, he's dead. No, that's overacting. And that's what Gates McFadden does as Crusher this entire episode. Now I know what you're thinking. Lore, dude, her, her son's in danger. Yeah, I know. And I know what it feels like to have a young child who is either my niece or my daughter, where I'm worried that they're in danger, and I know exactly how I acted, and it wasn't to get all emotional. Like that. It was a lot worse than that. And you can't tell me that Gates McFadden doesn't know how to act like that, because she is a good actress. So I'm putting this straight on the director, or possibly the script. Or maybe both, because this whole episode is just a giant pile of garbage spinning, circling the drain. You notice I haven't even gotten to the good part, the one thing that saved this from Lamentation Territory. I haven't even reached it yet. So, she overacts, and, um, hostage thing, get aboard, return my child. You know, I'm curious why these aliens have claimed an entire sect cluster. An entire star cluster 
what does it data says? Like a thousand planets in this? That's a lot of freaking territory. To have what, by all accounts, appears to be nothing in it other than one planet of idiots and one planet that was, you know, possible to be habitable, and that's it. I know, I know, I'm being disingenuous and entirely possible there's other things of worth in there, but it's always kind of bothered me that they just took this and that's never examined. I know, political, war, history, it's kind of my bag, but once again I find myself wondering why did they claim such a huge swath of territory? and by all accounts do nothing with it. If there were hundreds of M-class worlds, which all had these strangely perfect biomes and these surprisingly Eden-like M-class planets with all these people who don't have war or violence on their planets, that would make sense. Wildlife preserve, again, right? Or maybe a feeding grounds if you want to get really bad with it. But, you know, something. But no never discussed, it's never explained, they just, this is all, this is their star cluster. Never brought up ever again. Not even in non-canon works are the Edo, are the Stupidians ever brought up again. And good riddance. <sighs> so then they have the don't babble scene. And then he goes way off topic. And he's been known to babble several times. He even argues, I don't babble, sir. I choose to prioritize my information in a different ways. And yet, we've seen him babble. Again, even before now. I got a perfect example for you. Code of Honor. You remember that episode? I don't blame you if you don't. There's a bit where Data is down there on the planet, and they're like, oh, Data, what can you tell me about the battle arena? Well, and then Data gives some random graboid of facts about the distance of the, the bars and how they are from each other, all completely irrelevant information, uh, some of which is actually inaccurate, by the way. And um, that's probably the definition of babbling, which Data, who understands the definition of babbling, would probably know that. Then, when Picard tells him, no, don't babble. Data acts like he's a freaking golem. No, not the one from Lord of the Rings. I mean, you know what I mean, right? The uh, the too literal golem. The golem that does exactly what you tell it to without interpretation or intellect. I'm sorry, we've established Data already. This is like the seventh episode or whatever at this point, or eighth, or whatever we're up to, right? He's not a golem. Why are you doing this? <laughs> and then Crusher overacts. Now, at last, we come to the one good scene in this entire episode. The one thing that redeemed it from Lamentation Territory. That is the scene where Picard is sitting in his chair, and Patrick Stewart actually starts acting for the one and only time in the entire episode. And he brings Data in. He says, help me, my friend. I am in a crisis. And for the first time, I feel like there's a genuine problem here, like there's a genuine dilemma. I've actually examined this exact dilemma, well, excuse me, that's a lie, this concept of this moral dilemma many times in my own literary works. You know, the idea that the superior power has the ability to enforce its will upon the inferior power, but does not wish to because the superior power believes that that is an immoral wrong and does not want to do that. But circumstances mean that doing that will also mean another wrong. In this case, in this exact situation, it, Picard does not want to just enforce his will. He could do that. That would be easy. But would that be right? Okay? And for just a second, I'm willing to give the episode some credence. 
credence? One of these days I'll look that up. And there's this great bit where, you know, Data says, Prime Directive, Prime Directive. Picard shoots back a line I love, and I'm going to start using this in the future. The Prime Directive never intended that. To sacrifice a boy for the sake of the Prime Directive. Yes. Oh my God, yes. Finally. Some actual sense-making. And then Data has this great bit, and it's, it's, it's a great scene until Crusher shows up. It's a great scene, and Data looks at him and says, would you sacrifice the life of one for the sake of a thousand? And Picard gives a beautiful response to that. I wrote it down, and I quote, I refuse to let arithmetic decide questions like that. I love that. Because the cold calculus of the situation is obvious. You know, sacrifice Wesley, save the crew, all right, bye. One for a thousand. But anybody will tell you that that's not moral or ethical or... or allows for thoughts of conscience. That is math, not reality. And I love how, how, Picard, how Patrick Stewart gets across his clear disdain for the cold calculus. They don't call it that. That term wouldn't come up till Mass Effect 3, many, many years later. But he gives his clear disdain for the cold calculus that Data presumes. And notice that Data, even after he mentions that, doesn't question him on that. Because Data also has a concept of ethics. It's built into his programming. Although that hasn't been established yet, but it's there. <sighs> now, I have to remove some of the credit I gave this episode. Because you remember how I said, you know, decent scene. It is a good scene. But I mentioned how it's this big conflict, this big dilemma. Should we intervene? What will it cause? Will this have ramifications on their culture? Will people start to question if they can get away with stuff too? Maybe this will start a whole you know, xenophobic era where outsiders are completely unwelcome that will last into generations, friends, blah, 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 blah. What could this, you know, and then all of that is thrown out the window because Picard said, I will not let this happen to Wesley. Now, on the one hand, I'm with that for the reasons I already mentioned earlier. You know, him not letting Wesley die makes sense. You know, I will not let arithmetic decide questions like that. That makes sense. I'm with that. But the problem is him rejecting that throws the actual dilemma out the window. Because now it's not a dilemma. Now it's a, how do we get away with it? Because, and Data even says it flat out, and this is the moment where the scene stops being good, basically, because Data flat out turns. Okay, I'm, I'm lying, because this actually happens before the arithmetic question. But Data flat out turns out the window and says, the problem, sir, is that, pointing to the Edo. And I agree. But that's the problem. You have, you have constructed something that is not a dilemma. You have constructed something that is a problem to be solved, and that's not a dilemma. A dilemma is no clear answer. A dilemma, a dilemma is things will go bad no matter what happens. You know, a dilemma is a dog barking for some reason. I don't know why she's barking. I apologize, guys. Um, so then they come down, and the, 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 the woman, Edoian, walks forward and bows in reference and offers the gold uh, communicator badge back. And question... Why now? I, I, I mean, these people have come from space. 
they have discussed their laws with these people. They have been completely open with this pre-warp society. Again, flagrant violation of the Prime Directive, etc. And they beamed down in front of people a bare minimum of twice. Never mind how many other times this has happened in the course of the show. Oh, also beamed up. Sorry, I wasn't even counting beamed up in front of people. So this is they've even beamed people up. They have literally teleported people. And yet, for all of these feats of things that would probably get them called gods by real-life people, it's the fact that they happen to be near the Stupidians. They share the sky with the Stupidians. That's that what makes them start bowing in reverence. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I mean, I, if I twisted it, that would make sense. Because the only divinity comes from the stupidians, therefore only something that shares the stupidians can be called divine. So anything else, no matter how miraculous or fantastical, cannot be divine. Okay, fine. I can at least see that, but what? And then... And then Wes gets preachy. And flat out says, you know, I, as a star, I believe, sir, I am involved in this. And it feels like the whole scene is structured like Wes is about to take a stand. And then he just goes over to be beamed up. And then Picard gives a frankly... I can't even call it a Picard speech. Like, even until now, again, seventh or so episode, Picard has already deployed the Picard speech several times. And it's something he will become known for. It's something he's really good at. When the writers know what they're doing, and Patrick Stewart has left off, let off the leash, he can de deliver some absolutely fantastic Picard speeches. Go watch Measure of a Man sometime. Go watch The Drumhead sometime, and you will see the Picard speech at full yield. And he walks up and gives the the most pansy-assed, half-written, half... We have decided to go do this thing. Um, hang on, let me check my notes. I mean, it, there's nothing there. There's no oomph. There's no power. There's no steward. There's nothing. And then Riker adds in his own little line, you know, oh, ho, ho, ho. I'm going to summarize the entire episode with a single line. I'm very clever. And then the Stupidians agree with them. And then they go to remove the colonists. And then the end. Like, there's no coda. And it's it's one of the first episodes where they haven't had the TOS coda. And it has to be in this frickin' episode? That now? Now is when you stop doing that? Also, I'm sorry, I gotta, I gotta add one other thing, because I actually skipped over this note, I apologize. I, I got into rant mode and I ignored my notes. This is why I have my notes right here in front of me. I probably look down a lot more than I used to. I don't want to miss anything, and I don't want to ramble on too long. There's a line said by one of the Edosians, the Edosians, who, uh, Edoians, there we go, that's how I was saying it, the Edoians. Uh, one of the, the police guys, I forget what they called them, uh, mediators. And he says, we cannot allow ignorance of the law to become a defense. Question. Why? Now, I already know the answer to my own question. It's because they have nothing to establish guilt. Right? Remember, evidence of crime, witness to crime, boom, we're done. If you happen to have a confession of crime, we don't need anything else. But, you know, that's all you need to, to kill someone. Evidence of crime... And when I say evidence, I don't mean evidence in the thriftist sense. I mean, there is a broken flower pot. That's the evidence. It, it, a crime has happened, and someone has witnessed it. That's all we need, right? So, 
if they were to say that you know uh, ignorance is not allowed, someone could say, "Well, I did, I'm sorry, I didn't know that was a crime," and then that could start setting precedent, and that could get entangled. But at the same time, even that doesn't quite make sense, does it? Because remember, even kids understand how this works. These people are probably raised from birth. Don't ever step out of line, because if you do, you'll be frickin' killed, regardless of age. So, why can't they allow ignorance of a crime to become a defense? Well, the real reason of the thing I've been building up to is because the only way to combat such a thing, if they allowed that to be an admissible defense, is by stepping up education. Now, can you name one type of organization that rhymes with, uh, Gristopian? <laughs> that relies on a lack of communication to function? Yeah. Ugh, I feel drained. I hate this episode. I hate this goddamn episode. I wanted so badly to give it a lamentation. The only reason I didn't is because I couldn't, in good conscience. I still have my own sense of morals and ethics to keep to keep myself bound to when it comes to my job and whatever meager professionalism I hold myself to. I am looking forward to seeing some of your guys' comments on this one. But I... Can anyone defend this episode? Is that even possible? Is ignorance of the episode a defense? Ah, <laughs> uh, enough. We're done. This is the last really bad episode of Season 1 in my memory. So, hopefully, fingers crossed, it'll be better from here on out. So I'll see you next time, guys.